0: back to the podcast I hope you are doing well today I'm joined by Stacy Haynes Stacy's a somatic coach and recently did a session for us in our inside coaching session which I thought was really great so I wanted to bring her onto the podcast and we're going to talk about sites of shaping how our class and race and culture are showing up in our clients when we're working with them so it kind of it's really powerful to begin thinking beyond just their individual history. We'll talk about resilience, how we can develop it and why it's actually important in any change process. We'll talk about conditioned tendencies, these deeply embodied ways that we tend to respond that can keep us stuck and how we can begin to compassionately unwind them. So Stacey is Co-founder of Generative Somatics, which is a multiracial social justice organization bringing somatics to social and environmental justice leaders, organization and alliances. She's a senior teacher in the field of somatics and designs and leads programs in embodied leadership, trauma, somatics, and she will also be teaching on our upcoming online training program called the Power of Embodied Transformation, and it's enrolling right now. We've had over 300 coaches join us. It's a brilliant program. It's really about how do you wield the power of embodied change. Thinking alone is just not going to create lasting change in your clients. So much of the, the conditioning and the habits and tendencies and patterns are living in the tissues of our body. So how can we drop beneath thinking? Thinking's brilliant, but how do we drop beneath it to access this realm of embodied potential? And so you'll be learning things like, how do you help people create embodied commitments? How can you help them recognize and compassionately unwind conditioned tendencies? How can you help your clients create new practices that help them embody new ways of being that help them thrive in the endeavors that are most important to them? And there'll be a whole section on becoming trauma aware and trauma sensitive too. We've got an incredible lineup, people like Richard Strozzi-Heckler, Amanda Blake, Deb Dana, Dan Siegel, Alter Star, B.B. Hansen, and Stacy I mentioned. So come and check that out. If you'd like to find out more, enrollment is open now until the 3rd of March, 2022. And you can head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation to find out more. All right, let's dive in. Here is the podcast with Stacy. Stacey, it's really nice to be with you again. I always enjoy our conversation, so uh, I I just appreciated our check-in already. How are you doing right now?
1: Um, I'm really happy to be talking with you, too, and uh, I also appreciated our check-in. I'm looking forward to continuing and diving in.
0: Excellent, yeah. I I just mentioned in the check-in that ever since I saw your inside coaching session uh, where you somebody and then we deconstructed that I've, I've been excited to speak with you more and unpack you know what are you doing when you're with a client and so we'll, we'll talk about that today and uh, sort of the things you'll be teaching on the upcoming power of embodied transformation program as well uh, so I think a good p- place to start is asking you about this idea of sites of shaping is something I've found particularly powerful in, in when I'm you know, considering a client So we could just kick off with telling us like what are sites of shaping and why are they important?
1: Yeah, thank you so much. Um, uh, This is a a model and we could even share the image on the website, but it's a model that really comes out of public health. And, uh, you know, I got first introduced to it around HIV AIDS. like, how would we end HIV AIDS? and all the levels that we'd have to impact from the individual to what's happening in family systems to what's happening at the level of community, institutions, and then of course, social norms. And um, I find this highly relevant to coaching because from a somatic point of view, we are all shaped by many things, right? We're shaped by our very personal experiences, again, by our family and community experiences, And I think often in the therapeutic or coaching world, we don't always recognize that we're very, very shaped by the the cultures and the social conditions in in, in which we live. And, you know, all of this is, as I think, has become very, very apparent over these last few years with the pandemic and all the racial justice uprisings globally. So when we're looking at coaching, as coaches, we want to first go, what do I embody how have I been shaped in a way that I might not be conscious of, right? So I work a lot with people in the, in the social and climate justice movements in the United States. And so for me to really look at, it's like, okay, what's my, what's my social location? How am I shaped by being a white person in the United States, by being a woman, by being cisgender? Um, also, I grew up working class, right? Like all these things that shape, we could say our worldviews. Um, shape our kind of conscious and unconscious belief systems and um, that are live and active. They're not just from the past. They're kind of what's what continues to happen today. So when I'm working with a client, I'm looking not only listening, not only for, of course, what they're committed to and what they want, what they're struggling with, but how all of that has been shaped by these multiple sites. And then particularly when I'm working across class or gender or race, that always comes into the coaching relationship as well. Even if I'm not working across those things, it comes into the coaching relationship and how we're building resonance and trust with each other in um, experiences that I might be able to relate to from my own experience or, ops, or not, not be able to relate to from my own experience, but really widening the aperture to understand <clears throat> that um, much, much broader things are touching us every day. So if I just give an example, there's a few people that I work with who have really been strong leaders in the, uh, really the Black Lives Matter movements and the racial justice movements in the United States. And the level of pressure have been under these last few years, um, all the way since Ferguson in the United States, but of course, with the murder of George Floyd and others in in, in 2020. Um, You know, some of the folks that I've been working with because of their public stature part of what they're contending with is getting death threats and we have to incorporate all of that into the coaching which is all about them being leaders and also them being black right so that's a very overt right example but um in in much more subtle ways that comes into the coaching relationship as well
0: yeah yeah and so how how would you you know in that example there how would you begin to include that in the coaching work so that you could support those people that are in, in, you know, leading in that way?
1: Well, the first one is to witness and acknowledge it. Right. So often, especially if I'm working with, um, with people of color, I'll say, how is it for you to uh, have, have, have me as a coach when I'm white and just name it, like make the conversation transparent, make what is transparent. I'll do the same thing across gender, whether I'm working with someone who's transgender or someone who's male, just to name and make it obvious and acknowledged and comfortable to talk about in the coaching relationship itself. And then that I really know how to ask questions about how they've been shaped at that level. I'm thinking of another leader that I work with. uh, She works in the climate justice movement and we have very different class background. She comes from a much more privileged class background, but there's very particular shaping around stress and performance. So not only are we talking about the pressure of her role in her job, but also really what she's internalized around class expectations. So that's part of it. Um, just knowing to ask a, a wider level of questions and see a wider level of shaping. Um, and then, of course, if we're working with, you know, what in somatics we'll call conditioned tendencies or the impact of either individual or social trauma, that again, we can name those things and get into those questions. Um, if I think, sorry, I'm popping around clients, but I think of another client who um, uh, is a man of color and the, uh, the particular way his condition tendency shows up Creates a lot of anxiety, and we had to really unpack that anxiety and say, okay, where is it sourced from, family and history? Where is it sourced from, um, the stress of his self expectations being so much higher than what's actually doable for any human being, right? And then unpack that both culturally around race and also around gender shaping. So does that does that answer your question?
0: Yeah. Yeah, I'd love to drill down on maybe one of those examples. I'll let you choose. Um, so, like, just I'm just curious how you, you know, you're sort of talking about how you begin to, you know, like name the the differences that might be there, and then also to help people begin to, you know, clarify or or become aware of the the sites of shaping that maybe I'm imagining there are there are sites of shaping that can be empowering and um, life giving. In some cases here, it sounds like, yeah, they're, they're actually creating stress or, or um, you know, a challenge for that client. And so, you know, and, and of course, we, you're a somatic coach. And I'm just curious w- what that process might be to begin to, you know, is it is it about being able to free that person from that conditioning or maybe it's about honoring it and and. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore finding freedom if one chooses i'm just curious like how, how you might work with that client in an embodied way yeah and that's a big question but we can kind of like take our time with it
1: Yeah, well no, that's that's great and you know we all are shaped by all of those sites and sometimes how we're shaped is resourceful and resilience building and sometimes it's uh limiting right? So we kind of feel like there's, there's no choices. And anytime we feel like there's no options, we know we're kind of caught in, in what we would call a condition tendency. But let, let, me, let, me, let me speak about this client with just kind of, kind of like a level of anxiety that was leaving him with very few moves. So the first thing we'll do, of course, inside of somatics is we really lead with this question of what matters to you. What, what difference do you want to make? And around leadership, it's like, what's the kind of leader you want to be? Right. So those, those questions, cause we always want to go, what are we transforming toward? And, um, and we'll, we'll dive into those questions of, of resilience. What brings you resilience? Um, so, so let me just start there for a minute. So that can be a very, a great question to take across sites. And, and again, it's hard to do it when I'm obviously being confidential um, and not, not sharing people's, people's content. But you know, if we really look first somatically at resilience, I might ask questions like, what's an experience you had, let's say in the last six months, that just had you feel alive or connected or really landed you in a sense of possibility or wisdom? And then ask a person very specifically, and for some people that might be nature. For some people, that might be a very particular kind of music that really emerges out of their cultural experience, right? Or dance. Um, For someone else, it might be uh, other martial arts or spiritual path, right? So we'll kind of dive into that. And let's say it's music that's landed in a particular culture. I can really say, tell me about that music. What's the rhythm of it, right? And when did you first hear it as a kid? And, you know, three months ago, when you're in that situation and listening to it with your friends or your family, how did you feel in your body, right? What opened, what became more alive? And we just really find it, but find it in not only a conceptual way, but really what was the energy running in your chest? And could you feel your lower body? And how did your body want to sway to that music and really access it somatically? Because what we're looking for and- uh, you know, I did an interview a few years back with with uh, Stanford neuroscience yeah, it, neuroscientist Andrew Huberman, and one sentence he said, which I just loved. He said, "You know, we are built to track for fear, right? It's like, is there something that wants to eat me, <laughs> right? Where is there more food, and how do we get access to it? Like, you know, our part of our biology is very, very old." And then he said, you know, resilience, he said a fear is a five-lane highway in our, in our brains. And I might say our brain's nervous systems because it's not just the organ of the brain. But if fear is a five-lane highway, resilience is this really slight footpath through the woods that if you don't walk it over and over again, it just doesn't get a lot of, a, 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 a lot of wear. So in resilience, we're looking for how do we access that, feel it deeply, and then of course, so oh, cool, how are we going to practice five minutes of resilience a day? And then at least once a week, ha- purposely do resilience practice that's like 15 or 20 minutes. We want to keep walking that footpath. So that's that's one example of how we might scale from the social to the cultural to the personal.
0: That's, yeah, that's really beautiful. And, and with that example, Because I um, I speak with a lot of people now, yeah, talking about this um, negative, you know, um, negativity bias that we have, orientation towards what's wrong, and um, yeah, I think it's really. Do you do you think therefore the question is that once you expand this capacity for resilience, it's like it's something that they practice and over time they, they they access more and more that can then allow for a greater um, integration perhaps of the conditioned tendencies that might, you know, in that example, you gave this man's feeling anxiety, he's feeling expanded and more resourced to, to meet that anxiety.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, You know, it's funny if we think about any, any bodily art, or a bodily path, right, of transformation. So we think of meditation, or we can think of dance, or we can think of um, Aikido, that it's not like you meditate 10 times and you stop meditating because you got what you needed from meditation, right? I mean, sometimes we do that. But, but we wanna, like, I think of embodied transformation as a lifelong path. And then what we're asking ourselves is, what is it that I'm cultivating? What is it that I'm cultivating? Because, you know, we, you know, you've heard this before, but we have this phrase, you become what you practice. Is what you practice aligned really with your deepest longings and who you want to be as a human being this lifetime? So when I, when I look at resilience, we just want to keep practicing resilience. And then what it does is it grows our embodied capacity to recognize resilience, to feel it, right? Because really most of us have moments of resilience every day and we blow past them. You know, like last night I went to my back porch and it was this beautiful gloaming of the sunset. Like the sun was down and the hills were, were, what's that word? They were just in shadow. And then behind it was just, just this deep peach salmon, blue, purple, right? Almost moving into night. And, you know, that happens every night here. But last night I was like, oh my God, that is stunning. And the silhouette of the trees are beautiful. And I just paused and then felt and let it, let it expand me and let it help me feel my back and let it remind me of beauty. Like even in our times, we live in really intense times, but even in our times, there's beauty. So So really we go, okay, how do we let that in let that deepen us and let it keep expand our expanding our capacity for resilience or for love i think love is a lifelong practice giving and receiving love i mean it's to me it's a lifelong practice like hopefully i'm pretty good at it by the time i die
0: yeah 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 that's a worthy thing to be good at isn't it yeah um yeah, I guess the question that, that comes, you've talked about commitments as well, that you start with helping clients identify what are they committed to becoming. And I wonder, I'll try, I think I'll mix a few questions in here. Like, how does that connect to sites of shaping as well? If it does, you know, that because I think certain cultures or, I mean, I'm from a working class background too. And I can imagine that that might impact the the ways that I relate to commitments, creating a commitment for myself. And so, I'm just wondering um, if there's a way that you that you find that coming up sometimes. And I guess what I'm asking is, like, do you, whilst whilst you always want to honor a client's commitment, you know, like at the same time their their conditioning might be coming through in the very way that they're trying to formulate the commitment. And maybe they need that that needs to be reflected back.
1: Definitely. You know, mostly when I initially hear people's what we call declarations or these visions for the future, I am often listening, how is their conditioning or their condition tendency shaping their declaration? Because in some ways it can't not, like whatever we've embodied will shape our our declarations. And also most of us have to really take time. Like I think of knowing what's important to us as a a process in and of itself, because most of us are living out of inherited commitments, inherited declarations. Like if we think about even like, we've all inherited this idea of what is success. And mostly it's really tied to global capitalism. I'm successful if I make this much money or I'm successful if I have this much status or, right. So we inherit these visions for the future that are all about our social conditioning. Right. Or I'm, you know, one I see with especially people that have more social privilege. So let's say men or often white people or people of European descent is basically I'm, I'm successful if I'm in control, or if I'm the singular leader. So most of our, our, many of our commitments are inherited from either social and cultural conditions or from our families, like who are you supposed to be, right, to succeed. Um, So unpacking, like often we need to help people get deeper into their somas, deeper into their bodies to start feeling their longings. Our longings come from a different space. They really come from deep inside us. Like, the back of our hearts or along our spines, or sometimes we have this gut sense of like, oh, here's what I've always cared about. I just never was granted permission to care about it, right? Or I was told I was too sensitive, or that was dumb, or that doesn't matter, right? So often it takes a kind of dearmoring or somaticization to even discover what, what we do long for. And then often what we care about is beyond our current capacity right, is beyond our current skill base. And then that's totally overwhelming. It's like, I don't know how to be that. I don't know how to become that. I don't know how to find other people who also care about that. So discovering our declaration is its own somatic process. And then it's totally normal that there's a gap between our current embodied self, our current embodied know-how, and That future and that's okay. That becomes the ground of transformation, right? The ground of the transformative work.
0: Yeah. How do you like? Because that's an interesting gap that you mentioned there that I've been sitting with with my clients, and because on on the one hand, and I notice in my own life, you know, it's like sometimes that gap creates tension. Yeah, it creates a sense of there's something wrong or um, I've got to like effort to, to get there. And, you know, of course there's nothing wrong with discipline and, and repeated practice, that's great, but I'm talking about, it's a slightly different feeling of like, I've got to grasp something as, as opposed to, cause I love this word longing you bring in, um, which for me, there's that, this kind of longing I can tune into, which is like almost it unfolds out of itself. It's like, it's a place to come from. You know, I can feel that leader I want to become, my deepest longing, and yet I can also begin to feel it as a place to come from in the moment. I'm just curious, like, how that, what that brings up for you, if that, yeah, if Definitely.
1: I mean, if we go to the very big picture, um, and then I'll back up from here, I think it's very important for us um, to learn to be with and tolerate the unknown more and more. I mean, I look at, it at our times and I'm like, I think our times are asking us to know how to be with um, chaos, how to be with complexity, how to be with the unknown and how to be with very dynamic change. And maybe that's been true for all of human history and we're just having our particular moment of it, but, but it seems like a lot right now. Um, so this gap, I really love what you're saying. So One of the things I love about somatics is in the days when we're living in that gap between who we are and what we're actually, who we're longing to be, one of the things we can always find is we can always find our sensations, right? Because really in many ways, transformation invites us to move from one known identity, one known self to an, an unknown, right? Or a becoming self. and. You know, in that it can be disorienting, so you know I know I've had days when I'm like, "Oh my God, I do not know who I am today or exactly where I'm going or how I'm going to get there, but I can still center I can still rest into my sensations, find my aliveness there's there's harmony and there's coherency in the aliveness that's already with us right now, even if the identity is disrupted, right. I know. Also, in you know, as you know, I work with a lot of people healing from individual and collective trauma. And if I just say, you know, in my own trauma healing process, there were days where I was so disoriented because I was unpacking and transforming my survival strategies, which I had known for a very long time. I didn't really know a self outside. And those days, I remember, I'm just like, you no, just feel my sensation. I'm present. I'm here. I know how to organize myself in the center. I know how to organize. I know how to ask the question, what do I care about? And I know how to appreciate things that are beautiful to me. That is plenty to organize ourselves around when we're in times of unknown or when we're in that gap. And when you talk about grasping that can happen in that gap, or many people just run back to what's known, even if it's not working anymore, they'll just head right back to what's known because it leads it's familiar. Um, it's, it's, um, those things, the grasping, the filling it in with things we can come up with, the running back to what's known, those things are conditioned tendencies or their ways, their old strategies to stabilize ourselves that don't actually lead us toward our commitments or what we're longing for. You know, we do really have to navigate this terrain of becoming.
0: there's so much in what you said there. I think what what comes up for me is like the this journey into a new way of being, um, not from the top down. You know, like I, this is a this is a theme I've been sat with a lot recently. It's like just dawning on me that how um, important this journey into our embodied life is. You know, like I've always been like, yeah, I get that's important, but but you know, the more I hear from people all around the world, like people like Jeremy Lent, I think you might know him. He was on the podcast, so he knew you anyway. Um, you know, the 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 thing that's there's so many so much lacking when we are only relying on our disintegrated mind, yeah, because the mind is not a bad thing; it's an incredible thing, but when it's this unintegrated. So this journey into our embodied life, how essential that is. And therefore, I guess what I'm getting to is, it's like, that speaks to me of like, the, the journey you're describing in some way that, that I'm in towards that new way of being, it's going to mean embodying ourselves, inhabiting ourselves in different ways and encountering ourselves along the way. Yeah, encountering this trauma and these strategies.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so yeah, I'm yeah, not sure if there's a clear question in there, but I just feel the significance of what you're talking no, there's about. something,
1: yeah, you know, it's funny. I mean, you'll probably everyone listening will recognize this, but as we engage in change, um, like changing ourselves or being interested in doing community change, or how do we work with our teams differently, right? I, I People will say it in different ways, but I do think there is this, I've just heard hundreds of people say they want to be whole. And to me, that wholeness points to if we just live in our cognitive thinking selves, we do not feel whole because we're not. It's just one of our intelligences. Right, and I think you know I I, I love Candace Pert's work when she talks about you know there's neurotransmitters in the heart, there's neurotransmitters in the lower intestines, and how I often think about somatics is if we we're trying to line up this this deep like gut instinct with this full-hearted wisdom with the the focus and the clear thinking and analysis that can happen with our with our, with our thinking selves. And like lining those up, like we're one whole. And then there's all these intelligences or wisdoms operating right inside of our, inside of our lives and our choices. Um, So, and it's also another way I think about it, um, you know, speaking about social conditions and the body, most of us at this point have been trained by the social conditions that the body's a thing. It's an object to be run and controlled by the thinking mind, right? We, in many ways, have Descartes to thank for that. But we also have, I have to say, Christianity, Catholicism, and actually many major world religions that make the body a sin. If the body's a sin, the body's bad. And it's so interesting that something that is, we only exist because we have bodies. Something as profound as the aliveness of our bodies is relegated off into this thing that we're trying to push away while we live in it at the same time. And there's this, um, you know, Eduardo Galeano, he, he's a Uruguayan poet, um, an essayist. And he has this very short, I hope I get it right. But it says, um, uh, oh, I should have it in front of me. But basically it, it says that science says uh, the body is an object or some, something, right? An experiment. And then uh, the church says the body's a sin advertising or capitalism says the body's a business. The body says, I am a fiesta. Mm -hmm. And I was like, exactly, right. So there's something very profound about coming back into the body, especially in those of us who've been trained to objectify it. Um, And it's a profound way to de-objectify ourselves, to learn how to de-objectify each other, And to come into a much deeper, what I think is inherent capacity for empathy, right? And not just empathy, empathy for ourselves, which can be very hard, for people and people whose lives we don't maybe understand or share, and also empathy for life, animals, plants, uh, the planet, the soil, right? There's a deep knowing in us that we're not separate. And I think the body is one of the direct ways thawing out into the, the living soma is one of those ways that we get to come back to our inherent interdependence, which I, I think has us feel much less alienated and much more like, oh, right, I'm, I'm, I'm part of something bigger.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and like, like we are our bodies, like you, you know, like we're not, It's not like we have a, so much of our language is oriented to that, isn't it? It's like, listen to the body, but even that creates a, it's not wrong you know but it does create this sort of sense of like I'm listening to my body you know um, uh, and I can imagine just that you that also you said about complexity and the unknown actually for me that the, the body is also uh, uh, you know as we inhabit our embodied self as we are that then we can more skillfully navigate complexity and uncertainty
1: mm-hmm. yeah in some ways there's just more room if you think about it very practically, if you're mostly living from your, in your forehead, that is a very condensed space. And then you're trying to figure things out. Right. But if we actually can live in our whole cells, there is a lot more space for complexity and there's inherent complexity happening in us. You know, our organs are doing all kinds of different things, our endocrine system, our blood flow and our body's regulating our temperature to our external environment is picking up things that are happening way outside of us. Like our body is built for complexity. We're built for complexity, but when we can try smaller and smaller spaces, there's not as much room right for that aliveness. And then, you know, kind of coming back to capacity and practice, it is, we can learn capacities that seem kind of magical through the body, right? We can really learn to expand ourselves and to allow a whole range of complexities without reacting and feeling like we have to figure it out when we expand our somatic capacity to do that. Or we can hold contradictions much easier without having to drive for an answer that might override some of the nuance and the complexity because we're not reacting to try to stabilize ourselves or make ourselves feel safe quickly or some of the old strategies um that that fuel our our conditioned tendencies
0: and i know this is a bit of a simplistic question but what what are some of the practices that might begin us on that path to expanding our self in that way i imagine yeah. it's also part of a whole trajectory of work but
1: yeah yeah there's a, there's a whole trajectory well you know the simplest and many people listening to this, I'm sure have a way to do this, but a basic embodied centering practice, which is really dropping our breath, dropping our attention down into the Soma. You know how we teach it is: you drop your attention all the way down to your belly. And then we rebalance and expand back out into our full length, our full width, our full depth, but not from the focal point of thinking from the focal point of sensing and feeling and dropping our breath, and our weight back into the body. That is a very simple way to go, oh, wait, there's all this room, I can relax back into that room. Um, There are movement practices, you know, we'll teach uh, what's called in martial arts, a tenkan, a two-step, or we'll teach a rowing practice that helps us really take that, that dropped open center into movement. To go, oh, right, I can stay centered and do something more complex, like rowing or turning, right? Or, you know, some in our teaching environments, when we get to be in person, we'll just have the 30 people walk in the room. Boom, there's complexity because we're navigating movement with other people. But can we do that while I keep my attention low on my body? I can feel my back even as I'm moving forward. Um, you know, with the pandemic, since we don't get to hang out in person as much, I'll just sometimes practice that in the grocery store. I'm like, here I am, we're all shopping, (laughs) right? Can I be present, pushing my cart or holding my basket and navigating space, but be centered and embodied while I'm navigating. That's just a simple way to practice being centered and navigating complexity. Does that resonate?
0: Yeah. And then imagine you then might notice the points where you get uh, decentered, as you, someone steals that organic avocado that you were just about to <laughs> put your hand on the last one, and then, um, but you know, th- then you can like notice where you you kind of maybe your energy shifted or or decentered in some way, and then then the practice is just opening up again or, or recentering.
1: So exactly. So this is the next level. So the first thing we're gonna do is just have a reference point of center. And then we want to, in a a kind way with ourselves, start recognizing what are my automatic reactions under pressure? So for many of us, we pull our breath up into our chest, we tighten our shoulders, and we somehow squint our faces or tighten our jaws, right? For many of us, the first place we'll leave is our lower bodies. Like suddenly I don't really have a lower body anymore. So we want to really open our attention and start noticing where we contract, where we leave our whole self, um, the automatic thinking or moods that go along with that. So we start getting curious about like, Oh, right. That's what I do. Or I automatically come forward and leave my back or I automatically pull back and leave my, leave my front side. And that that really becomes the ground of the work because it isn't that easy just to recenter. And once there's enough stress, it's impossible just to recenter without actually working with those automatic habits and survival strategies that often we've been doing for decades. So that, that becomes the ground of the work. And we really work with those in three different ways. One, is taking on new practices. Um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that. Two is something that we call blending or supporting the contraction in the direction it's going. And three is a process called allying and being allied with, but let me talk about practice for a minute. Cause I've been doing this a lot, you know, in our, in our online environment over these last couple of years, there's, there's kind of, core practices that many of us need that our lives didn't teach us. And one of those is just, uh, how do we, how do we consent? How do we say a centered yes, a centered maybe, and a centered no. And for many of us, based on family experiences and also based on social conditions, that is not what got trained into us. Usually an automatic yes, an automatic no, or an automatic maybe that is totally disconnected from being present or disconnected from actually what we care about in, in current time. So building practice or new competencies, new, new embodied skills help those more automatic habits start to let go because we have a different way to do those same things. Does that, does that make sense?
0: Yeah. So I think this is a really, yeah, like you say, it's such a relevant practice for, for people. So I hear you're saying that you, you develop these embodied practices and then that automatically begins to help with people saying yes, no, and maybe. But I'm just curious if there is a way that, you know, we could maybe take that and practice with uh, people listening now, you know, like, would you like recommend a certain um, practice to do you know, when we were asked the question, maybe it's like, that's already too late if you've not done the prep work. I'm just curious. Yeah,
1: yeah, we can walk through the practice verbally here. Um, We want to practice new skills before we're in a situation where we need to use them. Because the higher the pressure is, even if it's good pressure, we will go into what's already embodied. We will go into our automatic responses. And again, some of those still work. It's just some of them don't work anymore, right? So we'd want to, this consent practice that I'll walk us through, we want to do this as a daily practice on our own and then start taking that live into our life and take it live into places that aren't the super pressured places, right? We want to, you know, we talk about the body learns on yes. So take it into places where we actually, it's like, oh, I did it. Okay, that worked right? So consent, yes, no, and maybe. So the first thing in a moment we'll do is like center because we want to be in our bodies, feeling ourselves. And the shape for a no is just put one foot in front of the other, and then hold your arms up kind of parallel to the ground, like like making a stop sign. So your palms are out, right? Your arms are parallel to the ground. And basically, we're going to practice saying no, no. Right. We want to get that shape into our nervous system and in our body. So that's the no. Okay. Maybe is, again, mm-hmm. one foot in front of the other. It's just a more balanced stance. We want, just want to lift our hands up away from our body at like maybe 45 degrees with our palms facing the ground. And that's just maybe. You can think of it like we're just making more space. We don't know if we want to say yes or no to that. Yeah, so that shape is maybe. Okay, so we have no as a stop sign. Maybe it's just at a 45 degree angle, making more space. And then yes, is when, again, one foot in front of the other. On this one, you can put your feet next to each other. Open up your hands. Your thumbs are on top. Your hands are next to your body. And you can really feel this will open across the chest, yeah? And this shape is Yes. Okay, so what we're doing first in this practice is just getting these shapes into our nervous system, getting these shapes into our muscle memory, yeah? So first thing is try on those shapes, right? Part two of the practice, and again, you can do this all by yourself. You don't have to have a practice partner, is think about a, 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 a situation, a request, a, even a demand um that on a scale from one to ten is like a five or a six right let's not go with the eight nine and ten right now but we want to imagine that like coming coming toward you and then we just want to practice from center trying on all of those responses like here's that request coming no right here's that request coming maybe here's that request yes so you can feel it's like, oh, what is that like in my body to have that response? Where do I have a centered version of that? And where is like, for some people, the yes is so scary. They realize they don't have a centered yes. They just have an automatic yes. Or maybe they never say yes. They just kind of say maybe and go along with it. And that, that repetition, like, you know, I often will encourage people do that in your morning practices, and just do, do it, do it eight times. Yes. No, maybe no. Yes. Yes. Maybe, maybe no, no good. I just did it eight times, but putting your body in that shape and making sure you're doing it from a centered felt place. Yeah. Okay. What do you think about that?
0: Yeah. Well um, I think it sounds fantastic. And, you know, firstly i um, just the impact of somebody being able to say like an embodied yes to something rather than an automatic yes like even though in the end maybe the external out well maybe i think it would change the external outcome greatly but you know the answer is the same answer but the 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 level of commitment and um you know like what's the word like intimacy or or like presence or connection to the you know to the to the yes and then i can imagine what kind of impact that could have on the outcome and the experience of the person saying yes in that way Absolutely. and those around them I, I, yeah it feels really game changing to me and Absolutely. i'm i'm curious like cuz what if that person is you know if they're like if this you know this example you gave of, of a, an opportunity coming their way what would it because I'll preface the question. i found making decisions very important uh, in an embodied way. Like I used to think about it a lot with my mind and this still has some use, but I found now that I can connect to my yes or my no in through my body. Yeah. And it's then I, then I, it's so different. I don't second guess. I don't deliberate anymore. It's just there. And so what if that, example a person brings they actually know there are yes to it but they're practicing saying no even mm-hmm. though there are yes Would that do you know do you get what i'm saying does it still work or do they need to find examples where they there are no a genuine no to it
1: no you can <clears throat> uh you can know that your answer is no or know that your answer is yes and i really want to uplift maybe is a totally centered answer Some people feel like they have to get off of maybe really quick. And I'm like, you can say maybe for 10 years. It's totally fine. Yeah. So, um, no, choose something. Even if you know, it's a yes, you can use the practice because you'll learn so much about your no, you'll learn so much about your maybe, and then you'll be like, oh, wow, what does a centered yes feel like? Just like what you said. So no, you, you can use any example, but just use all the responses to that example right? So you get to know yourself and get to know what's happening inside of you. Um, And I wanted to say one more thing about that. What is it? Yeah. um, Most of us, (laughs) most of us, oh, I know what I was going to say. So you see how this is all kind of mapped together, like really spending time and getting to know, like embodying ourselves. So we're learning what we care about from the inside out, those declarations, And then starting to work with the the inherited habits or the survival strategy or the conditioned tendencies, those all um, inform a centered decision, inform centered consents, right? So yes, it's being in our bodies, but it's also knowing what we care about and knowing what our automatic reactions are under pressure because those will shape our ability to consent, or even what we say, our yes, no, or maybe, if they're taking over, right? But yes, being in our bodies gives us more information about both of those things. So we're not going into to automatic responses. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And one last thing is I find if there's something that I'm really like, wow, I just don't know what decision I want to make, I will set a timer. For maybe 10 minutes, and I will just sit in a location and feel my body and imagine that I'm choosing option A and I'm living into that future. And I'm just listening, listening, listening to how my body responds to making that choice. And then when timer's up, I let it go I move around a little bit. Then I sit down in a different place, set the timer for 10 minutes again and, and sit in the choosing option B. And usually, I mean, even with very big decisions, by the end of that, my body has so clearly spoken, right? Mm. Even if my mind disagrees, I'm like, okay, this is this is what's happening.
0: Yeah. No, that's a really powerful practice. I love that you share that. And, yeah, that's – yeah, I think if uh, people practice that more often, it would – well, I don't know. I think it would help. It would serve people very deeply, so um, – yeah, there's so many things I could ask you about now. Um,
1: could I, do you mind if I talk a little bit about safety, belonging, and dignity in our times?
0: Yeah, please. <laughs> Great, fantastic. <Yeah.
1: laughs> um, God, I'm just thinking about this and talking with people about it so much right now because I feel like they're, with the pandemic, with this really, like, increase in looking at equity and injustice... With facing climate change, there are um, there are many, many stressors that are both beyond our individual control, yet individually, there's something that we can do about it. Like just that inside of itself can feel so complicated. And there are a lot of things that are, in quotes, well, that are threatening, right? And... Um, one thing I love about somatics is somatics understands the psychobiology on the soma on its own terms rather than on terms that we've imported on top of it. So, um, we have inherent needs, right? So we are we're, we're part of 3 billion years of evolutionary wisdom us humans. Right. And we have inherent needs that are really a part of our, our biological inheritance, right? And and one of those is safety, right? We track for safety and the safety of those that we identify with. Safety is an inherent need. Because we're social animals, we also need belonging, right? We need to belong. And isolation is very hard for us. And if we look at our carceral system, putting someone in isolation is one of the worst things, right, that humans do to each other, Yeah. And of course, in the pandemic, there's been a lot of isolation for a lot of people. And then dignity or an inherent sense of worth, like we want to know that we matter. And that's not an egoistic thing. That's just part of, you know, we want to belong, we want to contribute, we want to make a difference. You know, another way we can think about this is what do people, what matters to people on their deathbeds? Did they make a difference for other people and who are they connected to? right? So safety, belonging, and dignity, they are part of us. We can try to talk ourselves out of them, but we're not going to succeed, right? So when I look at how much challenge and threat there is to our individual and collective safety, belonging, and dignity right now, given climate change, given pandemic, 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 right? Um, And given really what to me is a beautiful confrontation with white supremacy, with colonization, with uh, the slave trade. Like there's a collective reckoning at another level that's getting to happen right now, but people can also experience that as, as scary and as threatening. So to me, understanding and working with that safety, belonging and dignity are needed for all people Right. In many ways, when I look at kind of the decolonization movements that are happening around the world, it is a reclaiming of safety, belonging and dignity by peoples who were uh, exploited and oppressed. I'm like, of course, people are. Of course, people are wanting that. It was always needed. Right. Or if we look at the um, racial justice movements in the United States, which are also global, it's a reclaiming of safety, belonging and dignity right? Um, At a structural level. So I'm saying all of this to say it feels to me like a time to double and triple down in really inside of ourselves and the people we spend time with to go, how do I more and more learn to work with my triggering around safety, belonging, and dignity so I'm not projecting it so much or I'm not imploding? And how do I become more and more self-generating Around safety, right? Around belonging and around dignity. So I can be well myself and then also generous in a time where lots and lots of people are triggered. You know, to me, this is a time of generosity, compassion, and skillful engagement with the collective. Taking care of safety, belonging, and dignity, including including the earth and our collective future. So, to me, there's just something very deep right now about us collectively recommitting <laughs> to safety, mm. belonging, and dignity, from the very personal to to the collective.
0: Do you? I, yeah, I I I think in a way, maybe there won't be any choice. You know, like maybe like it's so in our faces that. You know, like, I'm just thinking about the all the people quitting their jobs, yeah. you know, um, and, and yet a lot of these people have, I think, I, I don't, I'm generalizing, I don't know, but maybe not a lot of um, um, like savings to fall back on and things like that, you know, and they, yet they're quitting their jobs because they feel this deep lack of dignity in their work. And, um, so it, um, uh, but I wonder if you feel, if you feel hope with this, I get the sense you do. Cause I, whilst I, I, um, I feel like there is a reckon there, the reckonings are taking place, you know, um, I feel like there's a lot of polarization, you know, like even within these, these movements that you described around racial reckoning, you know, it's like, as a white person myself, I've certainly felt. A lack of dignity in myself, actually, and in, in some of the messages that have come to me, and that I know that that I would be criticised as being a privileged white person saying that, you know, and and so I guess what I'm trying to say is like, um, how, how can we do this? You know, how can we how can we actually develop these capacities to, in the face of, uh, you know, social media, which is just amping up the, the our nervous systems through polarization, and, and the news, which is completely oriented to you know, like yeah. Um, yeah. fear, and 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 it, and and then uh, you know, even in these, in, uh, like, um, with the environmental, you know, fact crises, like that, nobody can come to agreement. So, yeah, I'm just wondering, <laughs> if you way. feel? <laughs> same as Stacey. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish I, mean, I. I mean, more like, yeah. What, what can we? What can we do here? Yeah. Because I can feel my own. I can feel my own emotions
1: rising as I I share
0: this, you know? Yeah.
1: Totally. So first of all, I just want to normalize that anytime there is a lot of individual or collective stress and trauma, there is polarization. It's a normal response to trauma. So I'm like, well, of course, there's polarization, right? Of course there is discord where people are finding camps because we're trying to find safety in smaller and smaller places Right. So in some ways from a, from a very big trauma view, I'm like, okay, it's, it's a mess and I can have compassion because it's very predictable when you put um, a soma or a collective soma under a lot of pressure. These are some of the splits that will happen, right? Polarization will happen, not being able to resolve conflict will happen. Um, And then the thing we have to look at is who's actually feeding that on purpose for their benefit. Right, so, if we look, of course back up to that big level of social conditions and economy, you know there are some small groups but who are benefiting a lot financially from all that splitting or benefiting politically. so we always have to keep our our good analysis <laughs> intact there. But when I come back down to the the individual or smaller groups, it's why I say it's time to really double down on Um, working with our own capacities to to be with and work with our nervous systems and our somas to go, let me connect, like connecting deeply to my soma. And instead of reacting from stress, how do I internally regenerate and regenerate a sense of safety that has to do with knowing how to relax ourselves? That has to do with like, okay, how am I doing consent How am I doing on centered boundaries? How am I doing on being able to be responsive to my own and other people's needs, right? Um, Belonging, it is really time, even in the time of pandemic, how am I practicing extending belonging to other people and also receiving, letting myself belong? Like it's purposeful practice. Um, We want it to just be a given, but I don't think we are living in those times. Um, and then I I say, and you, you know, I say this, it is such a time to become a part of something bigger than us. And whether what you care about is like food justice, great. Find the people in your community that are doing that. And whether it's, you're giving 10 bucks or euros or whatever, right. We give, or you're going, I'm going to give two hours a week, but find something bigger than yourself. That's, that's offering safety, belonging, and dignity to something bigger that is so nourishing for us to it's nourishing for us to give. And, and I, I think it's a, a an, an obvious time for that, whatever, whatever that place is for, for the listeners.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah, I concur. That's yeah, really, really important. Yeah. And, and you know, I can feel in the way you connect to me as I share what I shared, you know, and you're, you're extending to me and, and then speaking into what's here and to the vision of what's, you know, of what's possible. If we, uh, if we kind of, yeah, commit to these bigger visions than ourselves, then, then I can feel what that does to my Soma and sense of orientation right now. So yeah, I'm appreciating that. And, um, yeah, very pleased. Like, I think, um, kind of coming to the end of our conversation and we've covered a lot and um i'm just aware there's like been 15 threads of things <laughs> that i'd love to like the, the piece around longing you know where people might feel armoring around longing i think that's an amazing topic we might have to speak about sometime in the future but um yeah i'm really grateful stacy actually um so i offer my gratitude
1: thank you thank you i really appreciate you too i i love the authenticity of our conversations and also how um organic they can be
0: Mm, yeah that's an edge for me sometimes maybe they get too organic but i think i think really that we did a great job today um i'm just wondering like if you could just share you'll be teaching in the power of embodied transformation along with with richard and um uh, alter other people um, could you just give us a, a little like headline of what you'll be teaching coaches?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I mean, in the very biggest picture, we're talking about how do we go from our current embodiment to an embodiment that's more aligned with what we long for and that's more aligned with our values. Um, so that's, that's the big arc that we're doing. And then the piece that I am doing in it is, is going to be this deeper dive on sites, and very pragmatically, it's like what are sites of shaping and sites of change? How do we integrate it fully into ourselves as coaches in our work with clients? And then, in many ways, um, you know, what is it to have a vision or a declaration that's personal, that's about our work, and that's also about you know the world that we hope our great grandchildren live in? So we'll be talking about that too.
0: Mm, nice. And also, where can we find out about uh, your work? Awesome, yeah.
1: good. Also, should I talk about the trauma piece that's, that's going to happen?
0: You can name that too, yeah, sure. Okay, great.
1: Yeah. So yeah. I really appreciate that you all are adding, I think, again, especially given what's happening in our world, adding this whole component about embodied transformation and trauma. So I know that David Levin will do a piece, I'll do a piece there, but really looking at trauma, we have a different set of reactions when there's threat involved, Um, So we'll be looking at, you know, fight, flight, freeze, appease, dissociate those automatic somatic reactions to try to really protect ourselves around traumatic experiences. And um, also how the body is such an, uh, I'm going to say not the body, our somas, (laughs) working with the body is such a direct way in helping to increase resilience and and also heal trauma. Mm
0: -hmm. Great. Um, and, and, and yeah, your work as well. Yeah. yeah thank people you. Find
1: that. Um, people can find me. So I had a book come out at the end of 2019 in the, in the, right before the, 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 the pandemic hit, um, uh, called the politics of trauma and it's somatics, healing and social justice. And the politics of trauma is the website. So people can find me there. And, um, that's also, if you sign up on my mailing list there, you'll hear about different places that I'm teaching or, or doing presentations.
0: Nice. All right. Thanks, Stacy.
1: Yeah, thank you too.
0: Thanks for listening to the podcast. I just want to take one minute to tell you about our live online coach training program, which is now enrolling called The Power of Embodied Transformation. It's really about how do you, how do you wield the power of embodied change? Thinking alone won't work. Thinking our way towards transformation is not enough. So much of what we've become, our habits and tendencies, our blind spots, patterns of reactivity live in the very tissues of our body. So in any transformational work, we need to descend beneath the mind, however brilliant the mind is, so we can access this transformational arena. That's what this program is going to teach you how to do. It'll teach you how to take your clients on a somatic journey of transformation through an arc of transformation from how do you help your clients create embodied commitments? How do you help them to recognize these embodied patterns that are living them in a compassionate way? How can you help them begin to open up their embodied life so that they can begin to embody new ways of being that help them thrive in what is most important to them? And also we've got this extra module in there this year, which is about how do you support your clients who are coming to you and they're dysregulated The pandemic's on. There's a lot of things going on in the world. People are dysregulated. Some clients are coming in displaying signs of trauma. It behooves us to become sensitive, trauma sensitive in these times. So what kinds of interventions can you make? How can you be as a coach that can help your clients in those moments? There's a lot in there in this program. We've got an incredible faculty. We have people like Richard strozzi Heckler, the Grandfather, the founder of the somatic coaching lineage, Amanda Blake, a brilliant teacher who can teach about embodiment and ne- the neuroscience elements of it. We've got David Trelevin, author of Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness, Stacy Haynes, an Alta Star master somatic coach He's from the Strozzi Institute, Deb Darner, who is an incredible teacher of how do we apply polyvagal theory in the work we do with our clients, and Dan Siegel will be teaching. He's a real pioneer, founding father of this field of interpersonal neurobiology. So just a few more things I want to say. What do you get when you sign up? Well, you enter into this trajectory. There's 18 live workshops, 90 minutes long each, and they are very interactive and experiential. The teacher's going to be there doing coaching demos, answering questions for you, taking you through exercises. You'll get four integration sessions where you really practice what you're being taught. Everything is downloadable and transcribed so you can really immerse yourself in the learning. And there are six bonus recordings pre-recorded featuring people like Peter Levine, Rick Hansen, Wendy Palmer, Stephen Porges, Bessel van der Kolk and Elizabeth Stanley. So how can you sign up? How can you find out more about it? Well, you want to head to coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. That's coachesrising.com forward slash power of embodied transformation. Enrollment is open now and the program runs from the 4th of March this year to June this year is 2022. Just a heads up again, if you're not on our mailing list and you want to stay in the loop about other things we create, then head to coachesrising.com, put your name in the sign up box there. You'll also find some of our other offerings, our online trainings for coaches there and Just want to end by wishing you well and I'll see you again next time.